Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and now let's take a look at the legal point of view on the Chris Watts case with criminal defense attorney Michael Rosen, who, in the interests of full disclosure, is also my husband. Michael? The questions that have screamed out to anyone who will listen since August 13th of 2018 are why and how. Why did this have to happen? How could a seemingly normal husband and father annihilate his entire family? For what? These are the questions that only one individual in this courtroom or on this planet knows the answers to. I fully expect we will not receive the answers to these questions today, nor will we at any point in the future. I don't expect that he will ever tell the truth about what truly happened or why. Even if he did, there is no rational way that any human being could find those answers acceptable responses to such horrific questions. The best we can do is try to piece together some kind of understanding from the evidence that is available to us. Regarding the Chris Watts case, there are a lot of legal questions that Steve Helling probably wasn't equipped technically to answer. So I thought I would ask uh, criminal defense attorney Michael Rosen, who is coincidentally my husband. And as I was following him around the garden, asking him these questions, I thought I'm going to make him sit down and answer these. So Michael, thanks a lot for doing this. Always a pleasure. (laughs) What can I do for you? Chris Watts. Why did he not get the death penalty? So one can hardly imagine a, a more serious, more heinous, more offensive act and killing you know, your wife and your two children, which he has admitted to doing. And knowing that in 2018, uh, Colorado had the death penalty, which by the way, just for everyone's information, in 2020 has been abolished in Colorado. There's a lot of reasons why in any case where the death penalty would be very appropriate, one could take a plea not to have the death penalty. Um, Certainly if the state wanted to, the state could enforce its death penalty and the state could have proceeded to take this case to trial. So let's assume for a moment, and I'm not sure that this is kind of the long version of answering your question, but if the state had insisted on the death penalty, he would have had no choice but to either plead guilty and accept the death penalty or go to trial. Think about this from the state's point of view for a moment. Other than his confession, which would then lead to where the bodies were, they didn't have any physical evidence. They had no witnesses. They had a neighbor's video that that mildly corroborated the evidence. So always on the state side, it's a question of proof. How strong is their proof? That's number one. Number two, on his side, if he felt like going to trial was the only option as a way of winning and he wasn't going to win, and the state was willing to say to him, if you will plead guilty, we will 
abandon the death penalty, but you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail, then that's the option that is available. It happens pretty, pretty regularly. What's the benefit to everybody? The benefit is for the state, and this is, I think, a pretty well-known fact, death penalty cases consume decades of incarceration while the case is being appealed, decades of litigation, multiple trips to the United States Supreme Court. So the state gets the benefit of the ending of the case. It's over. He's confessed. He's pled guilty. They're done. He gets the benefit of not facing the death penalty. So while on its face, it would be an obvious choice to have the death penalty, there are a lot of reasons why at the end that it's, it's not given, and those are a few of them. We watched the documentary, and we saw that as Chris Watts was confessing, he was in an interrogation room with two Colorado, Frederick, Colorado police officers. His father was allowed in there and the police officers left. How unusual is that? He's in the interrogation room with his father. And alone, yeah. I noticed. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you and I were doing was watching the time clock yeah. on the wall. Yeah. And it, quite honestly, it was a little bit hard to discern how long he was in there. It appeared that he had gone through a polygraph the same day. Sorry, we're laughing because my dog is sitting here snoring. Um, he had gone through a polygraph the same day. It appeared to be the same day. And the cops had done a reasonably lengthy phone uh, interview with him. And they still had not obtained the confession that they want. So one of the things that we did was reach out and spoke to some, some detectives to ask that question. And I, my assumption, of course, is the father, of course, got a thorough pat down before he walked in there. But what's interesting, of course, is that uh, perhaps neither of them realized it because we also saw, we saw Chris lean over and whisper to his father. So whether or not they recognized the fact that they were being recorded or not, being viewed or not, one would think that, that logically you, you, you were certainly going to be recorded. A lot of people don't know that there are recordings in the backseat of police cars. So, so a couple of guys get thrown into the can into the back of a police car for burglarizing someplace and unbeknownst to them, they're getting recorded. And the theory, the legal theory is you don't have an expectation of privacy, magic words, no expectation of privacy in the backseat of a police car, nor in an interrogation room. So, my, my suspicion is that, that, that they felt like they had reached as good a place where they were going to reach with him. He wasn't coming to the end. They must have either had the father on standby outside saying, listen, we'd like you available in case we need to talk with, you know, we need you to talk to your son. Or they called him and said, would you come over? In either event, um, it worked. So when the father came in, and Chris had already been worn down pretty much. They had already told him that he'd failed the polygraph and they were breaking him down, which is just the human dynamics of watching an interrogation and watching how effective interrogation can break down resistance. But then they got to that wall 
And by bringing the father in, uh, Chris had reached that place, obviously, where he, he needed to tell his father what happened, which he couldn't bring himself to do to tell the police, probably not realizing that it was being recorded, or if he was, way past the level of concern. So when he reaches out to his father, leans over and says, she killed the kids, and I killed her. And the father repeated, she killed the kids, you killed her? I'm sure the father was shocked, but now you've got it recorded. And even that wasn't true, but it was the, the beginning of the breakdown. By bringing the family member in, that last level of resistance gets, gets removed. So when do you bring the family member in? Do you bring the family member in? This is all you know, good police interrogation and how they handle it and, and when to do it. And in this case, it was 1,000% effective because they got the first confession to the father, then they came in and said, come on, let's, let's, where are the kids? We need to know where the kids are. So it turned out to be a very effective method of interrogation. Okay, but the police officers really had no way of knowing that Ronnie Watts, Chris Watts's father, wasn't going to come in there and say, hold up, my son isn't going to say anything. We're getting an attorney. That didn't happen. He tossed his lot in with the cops. It is the risk-reward, isn't it? I mean, the cops took the chance that they were going to have the father come in and say, stop talking. What are you doing? Let me get you a lawyer. I'll take care of it. Which, of course, leads to a whole other conversation about when in time should the police or should they have given a, a Miranda warning to Chris saying, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to a lawyer. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. And as an effective, I mean, think about this, as an effective method of defending this case, if, if the lawyers looked at that video and said, at what point in time was, was Chris Watts in custody? At what point in time, if Chris had said, guys, I'm leaving, when would they have said you can't? And, and at that moment, whenever that moment was, he was then in detention. And at the moment he is in detention, the Miranda warnings, as they're known, have to be given. And would the lawyers have had an effective motion to suppress that confession by virtue of the fact that at the moment Chris Watts could not leave that room, he was detained. And if he was detained and they failed to give him a Miranda warning, every single thing they learned from his confession, which of course included murdering the wife, murdering the kids, all that would have been gone. And he might've walked out the door. So those are opportunities that, that apparently were not taken by virtue of the plea, plea agreement. Let me ask you, let's talk about his lawyers. They were public defenders. Uh, public defenders are excellent, but it's a, it was a potential death penalty case. So how come some top criminal defense attorney in the country didn't pop up and say, I'm going to do this for you pro bono just for the publicity. Well, I mean, why they didn't do it, I don't know. Uh, you have to be death qualified to take on a death penalty case. Explain that. What's death qualified? So there, are, there is training uh, that, that states require lawyers to take and to be certified because death penalties cases, as they say, death is different. So that, that is, as, as a legal term, 
by virtue of all the litigation that's taken place, one of the things the state has done to protect against ineffective assistance of counsel is to make sure that the lawyers who are appointed or a lawyer that's retained, either way, is death penalty qualified. To answer your question, um, you know, lawyers like publicity, some do, and um, certainly it's a case that was high profile. So a lawyer could well have volunteered to take the case and, and listen, it's up to Chris Watts. Do you want to have that lawyer or not? He may have had complete faith in the lawyers he had. You know, I, I, I have always told clients, um, you know, public defenders are overworked. There's no doubt about it because there are so many cases, but there are a lot of very fine lawyers that are public defenders and don't write them off because of that. Clients often think that public defenders are part of the government. You know, you're part of the government. And the answer is no. I may get paid by the United States of America, but I'm your lawyer, and that's it. So there's a lot of misconceptions about public defenders, but if these two were death qualified, which I'm sure they were, and um, they were good at what they do, which I imagine, I hope they were, then you don't need retained counsel. And if some high-power lawyer wants to come in, if Chris Watts wanted it, he could have had it. Can Chris Watts appeal his quintuple life sentence without possibility of parole? Can he appeal it? Every state and the federal government has a time limitation on when you can appeal a sentence. Uh, ordinarily, 10, 14 to 30 days is a time frame that, that, that if you don't file a notice of appeal, you're done. Well, we're what, two years later. So he cannot appeal his sentence that opportunity is gone. Can he challenge it? So there is, of course, a term that everybody knows, habeas corpus, uh, which does allow a, a um, defendant to challenge his, his sentence different than filing an appeal. So to get into the waters and to the weeds a little bit, an appeal pertains to the case and the merits of the case. Habeas corpus challenges the lawfulness of your detention meaning my lawyer didn't do a, a, a correct job. So I'm here unlawfully because I didn't get Sixth Amendment representation. That's Which, the difference. So that's ineffective counsel. Ineffective assistance of counsel is a Sixth Amendment violation. When I start, started first practicing law back in the caveman days, you could file a habeas anytime you wanted, anytime, 40 years later. That changed, and now there are time limits in federal court. It's one year. In Colorado, it's 13 months. If he hasn't filed the habeas by now, that's lost. There is one last magic writ called writ of quorum nobis that can be filed later. It is um, a much harder, much tougher road to go and typically very unsuccessful. Last but not least, Chris Watts was moved from a maximum, maximum security prison in Colorado to a maximum security prison in Wisconsin. Why would that be? Primarily, they, 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 prisoners will get moved in high-profile cases if there is an ability to do it outside the jurisdiction of where this crime took place. And, and certainly, um, my instant reaction is that uh, Chris Watts was not going to make it very long in Colorado. Uh, it's, it's a well-known state fact that uh, prisoners that, that – that, kill kids and molest kids, don't fare well in prison. And um, it's a matter of prison cred 
you take out the mess with the kid, you've got some credibility. And so to move him to Wisconsin, where presumably he's an unknown commodity. Or right? at least lesser known commodity. Correct. Um, you know, word gets around, people know who you are, but the profile, the publicity didn't exist there. So, and I'm sure he will not be in general population. He will have some sort of segregation where, unfortunately for him, the rest of his life will be, thir- you know, 23 hours in, in, a, in a solitary and, and an hour outside or whatever their criteria is over there, but he will not be in general population. So it's a function of uh, saving this guy's life just by moving him to a facility where he will be uh, less in danger. Michael, thanks very much for answering some questions that we really wanted answers to, and you gave us some things to think about. So thanks for taking part in this. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Katrina Daniel. Thank you for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime, Instagram, Primetime Crime 7, and Twitter, Primetime Crime 3. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts.